The way of contentment in giving and receiving. He hasn't stopped talking about contentment, and he really won't until the end of this uh, chapter. But I'd just like to do an overview, a quick overview, so that we can stay on track with where we have come from in this way of contentment. We started in verse 10, and let me read this to you so you have it at the outset. Beginning in verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunities. Talking about a gift that they gave to him, and he's rejoicing now because they sent him this gift, and, and they were concerned for him, but they didn't have opportunity to send it. I don't know if they lost track of him or what, but now that gift has come to him through Epaphrodites. And he's thanking them for them. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, we taught up to that point. Today, we're going to take verses 15 through 17. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So we're going to talk about this giving and receiving. It's all about money. Um, this is exactly what he was talking about. They sent him money, and uh, so we're going to talk about it. But we, we said that at the outset of this series on contentment, the way of contentment, that you begin with gratitude, verse 10. That's what Paul did. He started with telling them how grateful he was for the gift that they sent to him. Epaphrodites had delivered it to Paul in Rome, and it was a revived habit that the Philippian church had historically been involved in giving over the years. In fact, in um, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul uses uh, the Macedonian churches, which would be Philippi, basically, to actually... I won't say chorus, but it almost sounds like that. He's using them as an example and saying, now you Corinthians, who were quite a lot, you Corinthians, we want you to be good to the commitment that you made with the finances that you said you were going to give because the Macedonian church has been very faithful in their giving and we wouldn't want you to be embarrassed when we come to collect it if you don't have that money ready. Wow. But he did that. So the Macedonian church is kind of an example of giving, a giving church. Secondly, uh, don't receive the providence of God without, or, or do receive the providence of God without complaint. Uh, you see that in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That means that there can't be a rejection of the circumstances that you might be experiencing grumbling and complaining about them, or the adoption of a victim mentality like, poor me, right? What about me? That would be to call into question the wisdom of the providence of God. And that would mean that you have an a insufficient or an immature view of the sovereignty of God. When you begin to grumble and moan and groan about the circumstances that you're facing, you have forgotten that God is sovereign. He doesn't miss anything. And sometimes he uses difficulties to bring us in and bring us along uh, in our sanctification. That little word want means not having sufficient means. He says um, in verse 11, not that I speak from want. He wasn't in a situation where he had insufficient means. And then he says, I've learned to be content, right? For I have learned to be content. And that word content means having what's sufficient uh, to meet the need, Self-sufficient is actually what the word uh, contentment means here. 
It means that you have the wherewithal to withstand any kind of situation. And so he's assuring them that he received the providence of God without complaint, whether he was hungry or, or, or full or whether he had money or he didn't have money. And then we went and we gave uh, an old definition of contentment to show that we need to adopt or assume a certain mindset of contentment. Okay, And we took it from Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan from 1648. He said this, quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit or, or mindset that you have, which freely submits to and even delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now that was jam-packed and we unpacked it but I'm just going to remind you of the, just the, the top of what we talked about. So there is a specific way of thinking. He says, you know, it, it, it's that inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. It's sweet in that it's attractive. It's the opposite of bitterness. You know, some people fall into situations and circumstances and they become bitter. And Hebrews warns us about letting a root of bitterness spring up in our heart whereby many are defiled. When, you know, we don't live as islands. We're, we're not uh, just to ourselves. And the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we receive the ups and downs of life, they have an impact on people around us. Way more than I think we realize. And so you are important, folks. I'm not saying that to build up your egos and, and do a psychological whoopee for you. I'm just saying you impact people and you can impact people positively or negatively. So that, that sweet, that sweet inward quietness. Inward quietness because it is a mindset. It's an attitude of the heart. Quiet means there's a lack of internal turmoil and unsettledness. You know when you're unsettled. And you know the more that you walk under the control of the spirit, the quicker you catch that unsettled spirit that comes in. And you realize something's off. And I would suggest that you just stop what you're doing, even if you're at work, go into the lavatory or whatever, and quiet yourself. Find out what's, what's knocking you cullywampus because you're affecting people in the way that you respond. Something sets you off. Gracious. The enabling grace of God is evidenced in the believer's inner person, and so self-drivenness has been driven out. You're not caught up in selfish ambition. You are content with what God has brought your way. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and better yourself, gain further education, whatever, all as God allows you, but it means that you're not just striving and discontent, right? And then there needs to be a free submission to God's working, not grudgingly or hesitating and delighting in. This is the hard part. Not questioning, not resisting, or arguing, not for a moment, but rather these ones who are content delight. It's joyfully embracing God's choices for our life. Okay? I'll tell you, I'll tell you one place that we can really see discontentment is singleness. Okay? Singleness. People struggle with that very, very, very much because it's a lonely world. And so singleness is, is one where... Uh, another way that we really struggle with things is, is when we don't have enough, per us, our thinking. <laughs> you know? And you got Rockefeller, who was the richest man in the world, and they asked, when is enough enough? And he said, when I have a little bit more. Okay? You don't want to be like that. But that's a hard attitude. And that was his attitude that drove him. So then Paul went in verse 12 about learning contentment. This is how he learned contentment. Learning contentment is in the living. It's not theoretical. It's not aspirational. It's that you actually find yourself in a difficult position. And can I tell you that, that I'm old enough to say that I've been up and down, round and round, <laughs> okay? And, and I've had times of affluence in my life. And I've had times where I was dirt poor, dirt poor. 
And God teaches us through both of those things. And we need to just open our lives up to him and humble ourselves. Okay, Paul says whether humble means or prosperity, that's not the issue. And that's why he gives those contrasts there. Because it didn't matter. He just remained steady through it by the enabling grace of God. He learned contentment through those things that he went through in his life. They're the training ground for God's children to learn contentment. Don't run away in difficult situations. Stay put and learn what God has for you. Otherwise, you will just repeat it. You will just repeat it because he's trying to get through to our hearts that we can trust him. He is trustworthy. And when we bolt, we're not trusting him. We bolt to do what? To find something that's a little bit easier, less difficult. Don't do that when you face those difficulties. Now, the key to Christian contentment, we said, is found in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that's the bottom line. I said it's kind of like if you have a jar and it doesn't have anything in it, as soon as you place something in it, you displace the air that was taking up that jar. If you have water in it, you can't put something else in it without displacing that water. And that is the way when a person is filled with pursuing things in the world, they cannot be filled with Christ. Chasing after riches to satiate desires in our hearts, that's kind of replacing Christ with that desire for riches. Pursuing self-identity and promotion of yourself, that is replacing Christ or displacing him, might be a better term. Driving toward expectations outside of the providences of God, that's running from difficult providences, that would be displacing Christ and not allowing him to have his full will in your life through that circumstance. Searching for happiness in a way that the world defines happiness, which is false on every level, that displaces Christ. So none of those desires or pursuits will result in divine contentment. And I went to 2 Corinthians 11.3 to help us. But I am afraid, Paul said, that as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden by his craftiness, your minds, very important our thinking, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity, the singleness, not, not simple and it's easy, the singleness, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Uh, the whole idea here is that when there is a singular devotion to Christ, you will not be led astray. Neither will you displace him in your heart. You'll be able to maintain your spiritual equilibrium. You'll be steady whether you have a lot or you have a little. When devotion remains singular, there's no opportunity for circumstances to move you away from Christ. And that's what Paul meant when he said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Now, some of you that are listening to me and your heart's open and you're receiving these things, you're questioning, you're going, um, that's pretty heavy, Pastor. What are you saying? Well, I'm not saying anything more than what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We live in a day where Christianity is so mediocre. It is, it's hardly even identifiable with New Testament Christianity. And, and when you read verses like, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, or don't be robbed from the simplicity of the purity of devotion to Christ, those things talk about a life that is dedicated 100% to Jesus Christ. Some in recent years have termed it lordship because there was cheap grace going around pretty strong that as long as you named the name of Jesus, it didn't matter the way you lived. It does matter the way you live. And actually, you're testifying to the fact that you're not a believer if you're not living according to the Scriptures. 
So this is it's radical, it sounds radical to us, but really, I, I mentioned to you, this is, this is basic. This is Christianity 101, according to the New Testament, not according to modern American Christianity. Because modern American Christianity, if you go to church every so often and, and give to the church and maybe go to a Bible study, you're, you're good, you're good. Man, I don't know, I, I can't find that in the Scripture. I find what this radical statement is here. Reiteration of his gratitude for their gift came in verse 14, and that leads us to the new material. Verses 15 through 17, where we learn about this giving and receiving, and it's very interesting. So I'd like to pray before we get into the new stuff, okay? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for the teaching of the New Testament. And Father, I thank you for each and every one that's here and those that are listening online. Father, for the fact that they are showing up. They're, they're, they're making the effort to receive instruction from your word and to worship you. And that is well-pleasing to you, Lord. I pray that you would open up every heart that is within the sound of my voice right now, that you would work on us to cast off those things that are distracting us, the thoughts of... Uh, from last week or the thoughts of anticipating what's coming at us this week, Lord, that we just hunker down and settle down and open ourselves up to your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to bring it to bear in our lives. Thank you for this now in Jesus' name. So as I told you, we're going to be talking about giving and receiving. We're talking about finances, which is a very touchy subject. Money, very touchy. Money is a funny commodity. It's fraught with problems, and one of the greatest problems is not having enough, right? <laughs> just a real problem with money, just don't have quite enough. But other problems come up for God's children when it comes to money, such as how to spend what we do have. The dilemma of how do we disperse the finances that we do have, or where to give and where not to give. I mean, you know, some of those TV commercials are really challenging. I, I've almost fallen to about three of them. They're really powerful. And, and they're good causes, but is that where I should be putting my money? How do you decide that? Give only to the church or to ministries outside the church or not even ministries to good causes, okay? Or, or, or how to give. Do, do I let my name be known with my giving or should I be anonymous? All these things come to bear. Money is a quagmire, I'll tell you, it is. When it comes to money, the church, and missions, the problems can multiply. When you start talking about missions, oh my gosh. There are a number of differing philosophies where financial assistance is concerned. You have George Mueller, okay? George Mueller opened his first house for orphans in Bristol, England, in 1836. He went on to build five more houses for orphans, and he cared for over 17,000 orphans in the span of his ministry. He raised 86 million pounds, which comes to about $120 million in our day and age. And you think, well, that's, that's you know, it's commendable. Well, it's even more than commendable when his philosophy of raising funds comes out because he never, ever asked for money. He never, ever let his needs be known. That's George Mueller. You might want to pick up his biography, George Mueller of Bristol by A.T. Pearson. Uh, it, would, it would revolutionize your life and your faith. So, Mueller, he goes by these principles, never have a fixed income. Never appeal for funds. Never have any savings but to spend all his extra on the poor. Owe no one anything. Now, Hudson Taylor from the China Inland Mission was very influenced by this man, as was C.T. Studd and many other missionaries. Mueller testified to many last-minute deliverances. The one I like best is he's got all the orphans sitting at the table for breakfast and he didn't have anything to give them. And they sat down and returned thanks to the Lord in the middle of the prayer. There's a knock at his door. And the milkman, 
his cart had broken a wheel and he had to get rid of all the milk that he had and so he asked George if he could use the milk and so they had milk. Brothers and sisters, living by faith is exciting. Exciting. And I, I tell you, um, the mission that Mary and I were with followed his suit. And so from 1977 till 1995, Mary and I lived by these principles. We never missed a meal. We lived on the other side of the world. And never, never once. And we never asked for money. So that's just a personal testimony. Now I do want to tell you that missionaries who let their needs be known Okay, we have a packet that is, you know, we need $60,000, and, um, you know, it includes this and this and this. Please pray with us if you'd like to partner with us. Well, according to George Mueller, I mean, that's anathema, right? But the thing is, in the Scripture, you don't have George's way laid out precisely. That was how God, you know, led George, and that was great, and it's a great testimony to God meeting his needs as he trusted God alone. But you know, there are scripture passages like 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18 that speaks of an elder who rules well, being worthy of double honor. That's Paul saying that an elder is worthy of double honor. That's financial, um, especially if they're good and work hard at preaching and teaching. And then in verse 18, he uses a text from the Old Testament, drive over his point, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. So how does that fit with what George was doing? And then you have Romans 15, 24, where Paul asked the church at Rome uh, to be his base of support for his ministry to Spain. He planned first to visit the church in Rome for a bit, and then he was going to go on to Spain. He says, with your help, I expect you to help me on my way to Spain. Well, if that's not asking for funding, I don't know what is. It is. 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, like I told you, chapters 8 through 9, the most in-depth teaching on Christian giving in New Testament. And the context is Paul's request for the church at Corinth to make good on their pledge for the offering to the poor in Jerusalem. And as I told you, he used Macedonian churches that were known throughout all the churches for their giving to kind of tweak them a bit and encourage them, make good now. You don't want to be embarrassed. Wow. I don't want to say manipulation, but it's really close, right? He's kind of cracking the whip on them. Well, that's George Mueller. There's, there's other things that we could do. How about capital campaigns? Are, are they biblical or unbiblical? Well, as a church member grows in their faith and understanding of God's provision, it's only natural that giving toward God's vision will increase. I think of this building. Folks, we're like 130, 140 people. And you dug deep. You know who you guys are. And, and we bought this building. <laughs> I'm still staggered. This beam alone was $150,000. we are paying it off in October. Hallelujah. That's one mortgage, but then we got the big one still coming. <laughs> but honestly, and, and we, we did a modified, you know, uh, a modified uh, capital campaign we didn't have anybody come in and and you know the consultants and everything but uh, we did let you guys know how much we were looking at and how much we need it and you all just gave so generously and we're in this building and we haven't missed a payment on anything on anything so kudos to you guys uh, capital campaigns are usually based on exodus 25 1 through 9, where the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering, and you're to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. We do believe here as well that it's free will offering. We don't enforce tithing. There are some churches, you know, that if you don't tithe and you're not keeping up on your tithe, they send you a letter. <laughs> oh, man. I No, I don't think so. So God himself told Moses to take up an offering for the purpose of building a tabernacle. Notice that each person was to pray and give as they were led. If you read through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you see that free will giving, give 
what you have, not what you don't have. Don't be burdened. God loves a cheerful giver, giver, etc. There's also faith promise giving. That's another method of raising funds where you commit to trust God so that you can give X number of dollars above and beyond your normal giving to the church and you don't really have it. You're trusting him to raise that up. That is a marvelous way to trust God and stretch out. And the stories that you hear of how God brings in money, I got a bonus. I mean, I was at the deadline to meet my commitment and I got a bonus at work. I wasn't expecting it and it was the exact amount that I had promised to give. Well, then you have the struggle, right? Should I give it? (laughs) But that's the way God works. And so faith-giving promises are another another way of giving. The end of the story is that however one gives of their finances, the truth that we should keep in our hearts and minds is found in Luke 6.38. Give. We can stop right there. People, give. And it will be given to you. Now this isn't a word of faith type thing here. It's a principle from God's word. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. And I just say this little statement to keep in your mind about giving. You can never outgive God. Don't ever think that you're going to give yourself into the poorhouse. If you're giving sincerely as God leads you, don't worry about it. Remember the simple truth. God owns it all anyways. We're just carekeepers of his resources. And we could never outgive God. R.G. Letourneau, the man who gave 90% of his wealth, and he was rich, 90% of his wealth, and then he kept 10%. He practiced what I'd like to call reverse tithing. Is there anybody here that would like to practice that? Put your hand down, honey. Reverse tithing, can you imagine that? I met a man, uh, he, was, he was a fellow that was uh, uh, invented, um, what is that called, first, first alert pregnancy test, and he was a donor with an organization that I was with. I didn't realize all this about this guy when I, when I went to meet him. <laughs> and uh, he told me the story about his business. He said a number of years ago, about 25 years ago, he went and heard a missionary speak and really challenged his heart, and he came to see that he was very covetous and he was holding on to things very tightly. And he said, in tears, he, he released his business to God and said, you own it all. I'll give you every bit, every ounce of it. And he said, from that moment on, and that was sincere, from that moment on, his business just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Um, I don't know if he did the eternal thing, but I think it was pretty close. Um, I walked away after talking to him, representing the organization I was with, and I went back to a conference that I was at, and I got a call from his secretary, male guy, male secretary, and he, he said, uh, Stephen, I just want to tell you that, that Tom has decided to give you $250,000. I said, well, tell Tom thank you. $250,000! I later found out at the same conference, I'm driving down at a you know, conference from the hotel, and I turned on a Christian radio station, and there this guy is on the radio. And he had a radio ministry. I mean, you should do your research before you go to the donors, I guess, but I did it. I was just simply amazed. And what a generous man. And that, that really helped that mission out that I was representing. The question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. Think about that. How much of God's money are you going to keep for yourself? That's probably what drove Laternal. Now, giving and receiving, in verses 15 and 16, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the very first preaching of the gospel, that's in Acts 16 when he first got there. Remember, he was answering the Macedonian call and he met Lydia and the little uh, girl that was under demonic oppression and and the uh, Philippian jailer. After I left Macedonia, after he had established a church there, led people to the Lord, um, got thrown in jail, sang at midnight, got out of jail, 
led the jailer to the Lord. What a ministry. And then he goes over to Thessalonica, and he went to other places in Macedonia. He says, after I left Macedonia, nobody else shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And so those other churches that he went to, um, he was at, at Thessalonica, and he went to the, uh, Berea, where those were more noble because they looked into the Word to see if the things that he was saying were true. None of those people shared with him except just this Philippian church. So he's reminding them of that. And he says, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once to meet my needs. So he, he, he's pointing that out to them, isn't he? And, you know, Paul in Acts 20, verse 35, he's talking to the Ephesian elders um, at Miletus. Remember, he stops on his way to Rome. And he's talking to these elders, and he's telling them he's not going to see their faces anymore. And, and he, he says something very interesting in verse 35 of chapter 20 in Acts. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You can't find it anywhere in the Gospels. It's not recorded anyplace else except right there, and Paul credits it with Jesus Christ, saying it himself, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. In John 21, 25, we read, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not be able to contain the books that would be written. So he did many, many other things that we don't know anything about. Maybe we're going to experience some of that when we get to heaven. I don't know if they'll have a you know, loop going where we can just see all the things that Jesus did when he was on earth. And Paul and Moses and Joshua and Job. But Jesus' words must have been relayed to Paul by someone who had sat under Jesus' teaching. But they hold wonderful value. And I'm so glad that Paul remembered that by the power of the Spirit of God, and brought it out. When we give, we are focused outward, away from ourselves. Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? What pleasure we get when we give gifts to our children, right? I mean, when they're little and even when they get older, when you give them a gift and you really, it's something that they were longing for but just couldn't afford or never thought in, in, in the world that they'd ever get it, and you give them the gift and they, you see their eyes and you just, it's thrilling. And it's like doubled by 10 if you have grandchildren, right? <laughs> doubled by 10. Such a deep sense of joy and happiness when we give them something they love. We're imitating God. When you give, you are imitating God. Imagine our Heavenly Father. I want you to go back in corridors of time and even before time in eternity past where God the Father gave that wonderful love gift to His Son, Jesus. The gift of all who would believe, chosen before the foundation of the world, secured in time and preserved for eternity. Do you know about that love gift that the Father gave to Jesus Christ before time ever began? In John 6, 39 through 34, he says this, This is the will of the Father, this is Jesus' words, who sent me, that of all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, over in John 6, 36 through 38, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven to, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father's love gift to the Son is the church, people. It's the body of Christ. The bride, if you will. This is the most amazing truth that we have in the Scripture. And can I just say this? That this is not some obscure doctrine construed by John Calvin. 
It's not. And when you understand this, you just sit back. You're humbled by this truth. It's even part of Jesus' high priestly prayer where he says in John 17, 1 through 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now I want to seal this up in your minds because God the Father promised before the foundation of the world to give those he elected as a love gift to the Son. You say, Lenetti, where are you getting this stuff? I'm Arminian. <laughs> no, you wouldn't say you're Arminian, but you'd say, I don't believe in that election stuff. Okay? We are not hyper-Calvinists here. We are Reformed because of verses like I just read to you. You, you can't refute these things. If you look at 1 Timothy 1-3, through 3, it says this, For the faith of those chosen of God, okay, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, get this now, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. That's the love gift to the Son that God the Father promised to him before the world began. In Titus chapter 1, it says, promised long ages ago. But if you look that up, it means before the world began. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I am entrusted, the gospel. Wow. So if then we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, as Ephesians 5.1 says, then we ought to be givers. Givers. I had one man tell me once, and I thought, I, I love these little pithy sayings that, that, that you pick up along life's way. He said, there are only two people, two kinds of people in the world, Steve. I said, what's that? He said, there's givers and there's takers. Think about it for a while. Givers and takers. Just as God the Father gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, we should be imitators of God, be givers. And when it comes to the things of this world, believers out of all people on the earth ought to be absurdly taken up with giving. It should be a grand adventure. The giving of our wealth, the giving of our time, the giving of our talents. For it truly is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You will never outgive God. And as we'll see next week, God will supply all your needs according to his riches. <laughs> Excuse me? It's not according to what we need. It's according to his riches. How rich is he? And he's going to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You can't outgive God. But Paul also demonstrates the blessedness of receiving, because the title of the, the, the sermon this morning is Giving and Receiving, taken from the text. And, and he goes on to talk about he was on the end of the receiving of the Philippians' generosity. And as I studied this out, I realized Paul's doing something kind of subtle here as he talks about being on the receiving end. It's time to take a look at Paul's perspective on giving. Look at verse 17. He says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. It was for their profit. Their giving to Paul, Paul, the receiver, reminds them, was for their profit. And therein is the subtlety. Taking verse 17 together with his statement in verse 14, which says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in the affliction. Why did Paul say nevertheless? Because he had just got done telling them, hey, I'm good. Thanks for the gift, but I'm content. With or without your gift, I'm all good. Nevertheless, thanks for sending that money. It's almost as if Paul's kind of chiding them a little bit getting them to think, why are you giving this? Don't you dare think that my ministry would fail if you didn't give me this money. I think he's warning them. Could he be possibly 
considering the Philippians and that they're putting more stock in their sharing with him through their financial gift than they ought to? I'll tell you, that verse in 14 threw me for a loop when I first read it. I thought, why did he say that? Why did he say that? And then you come down to verse 17, and he takes a focus off of himself as a receiver. And he says, hey, your giving was for your benefit. This is amazing stuff. It's not entirely impossible for a person to think when they give something that they almost break their arm patting their back for what they gave. Because that's the human nature, right? To think without their generosity, the recipient of their gift would be in serious trouble. But I gave. That can come up. And then, and then guess what? Rewards are lost. It's no longer for your profit. <laughs> that's when it's lost. Um, for a real interesting take on this, turn to Genesis 23. You've got to see this, folks. I never forget. Uh, I won't go there. That's a side story. I get, I get taken up here. Genesis 23 tells the story of uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her passing. And uh, I'm just going to read it for you. Now, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for her, uh, for Sarah, and to weep for her. Now, just get in your mind, right? This is before the Exodus, okay? They, they haven't, they're not living in a promised land. It's promised. They're not there yet. And so, then Abraham, verse 3, rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So he offers to buy this cave. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite, mark that, he's a Hittite, answered Abraham in hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went at the gate of the city, saying, Oh no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So he tells Abraham, hey, not only are you going to get the cave, I'm going to give you the whole field that goes with it. Pretty good deal, right? This, this Ephron is really giving above and beyond even what Abraham's asking. And Abraham bowed, verse 12, before the people and the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead. And then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So now we're into a transaction. <laughs> Ephron has moved from generosity to telling him it's 400 shekels. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, uh, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, was faced and faced Mamre, Oaks of Mamre. And we read, And the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field, that they were within the confines and so forth. And they dropped deeds and everything. So why have I gone there? 
because it would seem that Ephron is being generous and giving to Abraham, and Abraham says, don't do that to me. She's my wife. I'm not going to put her in a grave that I didn't pay anything for. And there's even more to it, people. I, I, I love this. Um, there's a commentary by a man that I appreciate. It says this, that he might not lay himself under obligation to Ephron and the Hittites in so small a matter, but he rather wished to show in this way that he would receive no gratuitous possession from those inhabitants who were to be ejected by the hand of God in order that he might succeed in their place. Over in Exodus 23, 28, we read that God told Israel he would drive the Hittites out of the promised land. Abraham didn't want any part of the Hittites. He didn't want to put himself under obligation to the Hittites. And so he would not receive it as a gift, and he paid an exorbitant amount. There's another reason, okay, because Hittite law, now this is where Bible backgrounds come in. This is why you pay me to be your pastor. I study this stuff. And this is a great story. And the Bible backgrounds, when you get into the backgrounds and the culture of the Hittites, Hittite law specified that when a landowner sold only part of his property, i.e. the cave, that the original owner, okay, had to continue to pay taxes on all the land. Oh, there's more to this than meets the eye. However, if he sold the entire tract, the new owner was responsible to pay the taxes. I think Abraham knew all this. And he was unwilling to accept this gift and not pay anything. Now, in closing, let me take Paul's word of Acts 20, 35. Remember the word of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Here the whole thing is turned around. For naturally, one would think that the person receiving the gift would be more blessed. I mean, I would, right? But Paul shared something that Jesus said that just brings the opposite result. And by the way, these words of Jesus, not recorded anyplace else. Why is the one who gives more blessed than the one who receives? Because in God's economy or God's thinking, when one gives sincerely from the heart, often sacrificially, God marks that gift and he rewards it. But when you receive a gift, that's it. You don't get further rewards for receiving the gift. And that's why. When you give something, your focus is more on the profit that it would increase to their account. And that's what he said. I'm worried that you don't have the right motives in giving, but if you do, this will go to your profit, to your account. That's a banking term, which freaks me out. Okay, because Paul's talking finances here, and he's talking accounts, and he says, you've got an account. Now, I want you to think about this real clearly, Christian. You've got an account. How's it doing? How's your account doing? You know, we check our bank account often, our checking account. And Paul says, in this context, that it's like a bank account. You probably thought you just had that account at your local bank. Wrong. If you are a believer in Christ, there is an account with your name on it, and it's reserved in the bank of heaven, which begs the question, are you under grace making frequent deposits in your account? And how do you make those deposits? In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it talks about the Bema seat of Christ where, where every believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be judged a judgment of condemnation, but to receive the rewards of what we have done, what deeds we have done in the body. So the good things that we do with sincere heart, the giving of time, talents, ministry, whatever, that giving goes to our account. I remember talking to a group of high schoolers once, and I said, it's kind of like this. You have the capacity right now to store up building materials for your house in heaven. And so, I mean, it takes a lot of building materials. You need cement, you need wood, you need nails, you need glass for the windows and everything. 
So everything that you do sincerely for God and giving yourself to him, maybe through giving finances to others that are involved in ministry, or maybe you see someone who's poor and needs some help and you give to them, it's like you, bought, you just bought a bundle of two-by-fours. Good. So how's your account? And when you begin to think of your life like that, it's kind of different, right? Because we're usually thinking, how much can we hold back? How much can we retain? God's economy says, how much can you give? How much can you give out? And Paul, as funny as it is, he's telling the Philippians, listen, I really appreciate that you started giving to me again. Thank you for the gift. I did receive it. I'm grateful for it. But I'm more concerned that you gave it with the right attitude so that it accrues to your account. To your account. Good stuff here. You know, the principle of giving found throughout the scriptures based on the irrefutable fact that wealth that we have belongs to God and we could never outgive him. Proverbs 3 9 says, Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty. And then over in Proverbs 19 17, he says, He who has pity on the poor and lends to Yahweh. He'll pay him back what he has given. And Luke 6.38, what I already quoted to you, it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be given into your bosom. For with what measure you give, it will be measured out to you again. In 2 Corinthians 9.6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things. That's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. I know some people that make it a game with God. They're going to give and give and give, and then when he blesses them back for that giving, they give more, and they give more, and they give more. And when he blesses them more, they give more, and they give more. It's a totally different way of looking at things. Lend your boat for a whole afternoon to Christ that it may be his floating pulpit, and he'll return it to you laden with fish. Place your upper room at his disposal for a single meal and he will fill it and the whole house with the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. Place his hands into his hands your few little loaves and fish and he'll not only satisfy your hunger but he'll add 12 baskets full of fragments. How's your account? That's the message for today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... The Apostle Paul and, and how he never ceases to surprise us. Father, he was so in touch with you. He believed every word of his writing to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He believed that he must be 100% dedicated to you, that he would not be robbed by the simplicity of the singular devotion to Jesus. Oh God, we have so far to go. We're so needy. I pray, Father, that you break our hearts with these words, that you encourage us, and that we won't feel beat down, but that we'll be, feel challenged to see you do more through our lives than we could ever imagine, Lord. Because it's all for your glory, and of course we gain much joy through it, but it's for your glory. Let us live for you in these days that are perilous. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.